You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. That being said, I want to dive into Ezra with you. We're going to be in chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. If you would, as you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It'll be on the screen in front of you as well so that you may follow along and begin in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 10. Here's what it says. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles, that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the rain. (coughs) And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives." Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. (coughs) But the people are many, and it is time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikvah, oppose this, and Meshulam and Shebethai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I know we just sang the last words of the last song, said, great are you. Lord, and I was thinking as I was singing that song that there are more than enough things in this world uh, we experience and see that cause us to, uh, I don't know, question your greatness or your goodness or your faithfulness or your presence. I look at this story in Ezra. And feel the uh, and the difficulty, uh, the horror of the sin that is taking place, and the hardship of leadership, uh, the devastation among the community, even uh, how easy it would be to look at hardship and difficulty, pain and suffering, and 
brokenness and, and say, God, are you really great? And yet we just saying, great are you, Lord. And Father, I know it's because we can see your hand at work, even in this story, purifying a nation so that our Savior might be born. A pure, unblemished lamb who would pay the penalty and the price for our sins at a cross. So Lord, knowing those things, I pray that you would come and bless the preaching of your word. And in doing so, I pray, God, that you would lead us to the foot of a bloody cross and give us the, the strength and the fortitude of an empty tomb where victory has been had and give us once again to the hope of heaven reminding us that this place, this broken place that we live in, not our home. Remind us once again that great are you, Lord. I trust you to do this work and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you may be seated. <clears throat> so, hey, this, uh, this, we're in the final portion, right? If I remember right, it's the final chapter. Ha! We're in the final chapter. Gone are the days of four years spent in the Gospel of Luke. Who remembers those days? <laughs> There's a few of us. It was a slog, I tell you. What book are we in again? Four years later, Luke? Is there any other book in the Bible? Yes, there's Ezra. <laughs> We're near the end uh, of this study. And uh, these final portions of this book, uh, last week, this week, and next week, are, are actually a, uh, there's a sobering case study, is really what it is. A sobering case study in the doctrine of sin. Uh, it's really what we're seeing on display. The reality is this, sin is a very serious subject, okay? Um, it, it should not be taken lightly, oftentimes it is. Should not be swept under the rug, oftentimes it is. Should not be minimized, ignored, justified, excused, any of that. Um, it does appear uh, common more so today than ever in churches today. Uh, maybe more so in the West than in other areas, I'm not sure. Um, but it does appear pretty common among churches to only speak of God's love. To only preach messages of encouragement and hype. Um, and here's the reality. The reality is, I think, if you take the Bible as a whole, um, true Christianity um, should welcome the kind of preaching that identifies sin and condemns sin. Um, the reason for that is that God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, it can only truly be received amidst an authentic realization of the seriousness and the gravity of sin. Puritan uh, John Owen, um, he said that you best be killing sin or sin will be killing you. A phrase that uh, has stuck with me for a long time since I first read it. Um, Romans 8.13 supports that, says that if you live according to the flesh, sin, uh, you will die. That's heavy. You will die. If you live according to sin, you will die spiritually, eternally. If by the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, you put to death, think about that, kill, murder, the deeds of the body, another phrase meaning sin, uh, then you will live spiritually, eternally. That sounds like a pretty serious subject, being that it's talking about life or death. It's talking about you and I putting something to death. That, that's a violent act. I think of ways that Jesus spoke about this too. A little sideline. He says, if your eye offends you, your right eye offends you, what should you do? Pluck it out. Better to go to heaven without an eye than to go there whole and full of sin. If your right hand offends you, what should you do? Cut it off. That's not literally speaking. Metaphorically speaking, about the violent way that we should tackle sin. And yet, many in the church do not want to talk about or tolerate even hearing about sin. 
would rather hear light and fluffy messages that hype us up and encourage us and make us feel good. The talk of sin does not make us feel good unless you tie it to the love and the mercy and the grace of God. You cheapen the love and the grace and the mercy of God if you do not give a full exposition of sin. I'm fearful that many in the church today, not necessarily maybe our church, but many in the church today don't have the stomach for it. The question is, if you do come to a realization of the gravity and the darkness and the despicableness of the nature of sin, uh, what's required of that person then? Um, what's the next step? Once you kind of get to the nitty-gritty and go, okay, sin's bad, it's horrible, nailed my Savior to a cross, rebellion is horrible, it's bad, it's gross, right? I'm infected with it. Once you get to that place where you get some of that, what's next? Next, I think, theologically, scripturally, is that you begin to fight sin. So again, like Romans says, that you may put to death what is trying to kill you. That discipline, that practice of waging war against my own sin, not everybody else's sin, okay? Especially those darn Republicans or Democrats. Not all their sin, but my sin, okay? I'm not saying don't speak about the sin we see in the world. I'm just simply saying, if you speak about the sin you see in the world, but you're un- incapable of speaking about your own sin, we have an issue, right? That's called Phariseeism. I think that's a word, or I made one up just now, maybe. So, let me check check the dictionary. <laughs> um, that discipline, though, of waging war against me, waging war against my sin, that's historically called repentance. Big word. <laughs> what is repentance? I want to start here and give us a bit of a theology of that, and then with those lenses on, jump back into Ezra and go, okay, what's happening? Okay, so that's that's what we're doing. The scriptures are full of passages that call us to repent. I want to read through just a few of them without making a ton of comments. Uh, There should be a list of these passages, so you can write them down and reference them later up on the screen for you. Uh, Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back. So, repent means U-turn. Turn away from where I was headed. And turn back to where I should be headed. God's here, sin here, I'm headed towards sin, turn back. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Uh, Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions, if you conceal your sin, you try to hide your sin, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Not going to get ahead. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 2 Chronicles 30 verse 9 says, For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Similar word category as repent. Return. So often we realize that there's sin in our lives and we talk about it, but we don't make any U-turn. We continue in it. We excuse it, maybe, or minimize it, maybe, or justify it, maybe, so on and so forth, or just flat out ignore it, sleep under the rug. I'll get to that someday. Do you realize that sin will kill you? When somebody hands you a glass of water and it had cyanide in it, they didn't tell you there was cyanide in it, and you're getting ready to drink it, and they said, hey, there's cyanide in that water, would you continue to drink it? Heaven forbid, no. No idiot would continue to drink water with cyanide in it, right? That's a harsh word, right? (laughs) Fool, I think, is what Proverbs, is the word Proverbs uses. What kind of fool would drink a glass of water with cyanide? Same question. What kind of fool would continue to play around with sin if you know the Bible clearly says this kill you fools right (coughs) fools like me (laughs) second peter 3 9 the lord is not slow to fulfill his promises some count slowness but is patient towards you thank god we have a patient god and i'd have been wiped off the face of the planet a long time ago if i didn't have a patient god 
patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Does not mean all will be saved, just so you know. He doesn't wish that any would perish. Doesn't want that. There's a difference between what God desires and what God ordains. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 John 1, 6-9, if we say we have fellowship with him, God, while we walk in darkness, sin, we lie. It's kind of interesting when God calls us liars, isn't it? It's like, oh, you say you're following me, but you're practicing darkness. You're a liar. What? You hurt my feelings. <laughs> Triggers. But if we walk in the light, which I think is repentance, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's a beautiful message. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's crazy to be recognizing that. Not only did I just get called a liar, but I also got called self-deceived. <laughs> Sheesh. And the truth is not in us. Again, that is if we say we have no sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's just a handful of passages. Repentance simply means, again, to turn back around, to head in the opposite direction. The Bible has a lot to say about repentance and sin and the serious nature of both, right? It could go on for days with passages. All in all, the saying, I think, is true. Another saying for you to write down. Without repentance, there can be no true salvation. Without repentance, there can be no true salvation. We do live, I think, in the Western church today, there's far too many false conversions. People who call themselves Christians who are not Christians. The fruit of their life does not prove that they are Christian. Truth be told, we all have bad fruit somewhere in our lives. Why? Because we're still sinners, right? And that's probably part of the hard part. We wind up tolerating things that ought not to be tolerated, this is why Jesus is the one who comes back and separates sheep from goats. Because you and I aren't God. He is. We trust him in that. Some of that problem in the church today, though, I think has to do with the lack of the preaching of sin. Without repentance, there can be no true salvation. I said a few moments ago, in this passage in Ezra, back to Ezra, okay? Now we've got a bit of a foundation built on sin and repentance. We can go on for a long time. Massive books written about this stuff. Um, John Calvin's Institutes if you're a reader I encourage you to read those that would be a, be a good place to start and you'd probably see them and be like those are this thick Joe what do you mean it's a good place to start no no we won't but I that's a good place to start read it slowly over the next couple of years good foundational teaching on the doctrine of sin and repentance and salvation very historical and he's dead so he hasn't disqualified himself yet, as far as we can tell. So, as I said a few moments ago, Ezra, um, serious case study. You need to be killing sin so it doesn't kill you. And the way you do that is you repent. What is repentance? Is the question. Repentance. Here's a few things. Number one, from the text, requires strength and resolve. Repentance requires strength and resolve. Here's the thing. Repentance is not an act for the weak of heart, right? It's, uh, it's not an act for a game player. You all know what I'm, like a player? You know what I'm talking about, right? People like to play games. This is a serious activity because it's a matter of spiritual life and death. And that spiritual matter of life and death echoes throughout all of eternity. This is an eternal issue. Problem with sin is it's a momentary issue. Repentance is an eternal issue. And if you're looking at verses 1 through 4 and kind of tracking with me a little bit, I think there's a bit of a good illustration of the kind of strength and the kind of resolve that it takes to engage in the process of repentance. Ezra, where we find him, he's on his face before God. Can I just ask, when was the last time you found yourself on your face before God weeping because of your sin? When was the last time? Because Ezra's not the only one throughout Scripture that falls on his face before God because of the gravity of sin. 
He's praying. He's confessing sin on behalf of the nation of Israel. He's not even weeping because of his own sin. He's weeping because of Israel's sin. He's identified himself with a community of people who have walked in deep, dark, egregious sin, and he's weeping because of that. He's confessing sin as though he's part of it, even though he didn't commit it. That's fascinating to think about having that kind of heart. He's surrounded also, right, in these first four verses, surrounded by a great gathering of people who are following his lead. They are weeping right along with him. They're weeping bitterly over their sin. This is what true revival looks like. The idea of bringing a hyped up preacher to town so that we can get a revival going is not biblical. What is biblical is when an entire community of people get gripped with the fact that their sin is dark and disgusting. And it drives them to their face on the ground before God, weeping. In the midst of that revival, one of the leaders, name is Shechaniah, I think it's the first time that we have uh, heard of him, he stands up and he makes this really clear confession of sin and faith. You might notice what he says in verse 2. He says, we have broken faith with our God, but even now there is hope. There's a confession of sin. There's a confession of faith. Something we engage in every week here, right, in our, in our liturgy as we lead through. We're trying to train us as a church to think about sin and redemption and the work of the cross and what it means to confess sin and confess faith at the same time. This is what Shechaniah does, makes that kind of a confession. See, sin and faith are a complete confession for a believer. Literally, confessing sin and faith go hand in hand. It's very popular in the evangelical culture to merely confess that I am a sinner, I need Jesus, please save me. Um, That is a very basic confession of sin and faith. This uh, act of repentance that we're looking at, part of repentance is confessing sin and faith. It's not that you do that one time to get saved. It's that you do that continuously day by day. Say that again. It's not something you do as a one-time act to get saved. It's something that you do day by day. Repent by confessing sin and faith. This act, uh, it's, like I said earlier, it's not, not for the weak of heart. Not a silly game for those who like to play games with eternity. Repentance requires strength and resolve. And that's why Shechaniah, in this passage, what does he do? He challenges Ezra, really. I think in front of everybody he challenges him. Challenges Ezra to lead Israel forward in this act of repentance. And they're repenting from intermarrying with unbelieving nations. And we talked a lot about that last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there this week. If you didn't hear last week, you might feel a little bit lost. I don't want to leave you hanging too much, but I would just encourage you to go back and listen to that for a full kind of exposition of what was taking place and what they're repenting of. I'll make some comments again here in a moment on it. But what's taking place is Shechaniah says, hey, you need to lead forward, Ezra. You need to lead forward faithfully. You need to find strength. You need to stay resolved in this. What he's literally calling for most likely is a nationwide ceremony of divorce. That's wild. That's crazy. That's a possibility. Not going to be an easy task. I'm going to come back to the possibility in a minute. Either way, whatever's going on here, not going to be an easy task. Shechaniah does challenge Ezra to be strong, to lead this work of repentance, even encourages Ezra um, with the reminder towards the end of verse 4 there, I think that he's not alone in leading what needs to be done, which is really an awesome promise that Ezra's not alone. He's got some leaders around him, and they're leading forward together. Um, If you ever led something really hard alone, you know that's a scary place to be in. I'm going to come back to the possibility. Okay, let's come back to what's taking place. I do want to make a few comments there. 
Again, last week's message will probably help flesh some of this out too. I think this might give us a good summary of the sin that they're being called to repent from. Um, it's important to note that God definitely hates divorce. Everybody get that? All right, I've divorced in my past. I've divorced in my family. There's no judgment from me as I speak about this. But God hates divorce. Um, the Bible is very clear that the, really the only reasons for divorce biblically would be for instances of unfaithfulness, instances of abuse, I think, can be included, and instances of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Uh, Those would be reasons for divorce. Though in some of those, there could possibly be reconciliation, right? Um, If someone begins to follow Jesus, say you're married, now let's say one spouse begins to follow Jesus and then their spouse doesn't decide to follow Jesus too, but they're, they're willing to live together in peace with that believing spouse, then probably best for that couple to remain together, right? For the sake of peace. Uh, you can kind of find a, a full recounting of that in 1 Corinthians 7, and that does seem to be God's position on divorce and marriage in summary. If you're looking at the case here in Ezra, and you're just going, does God really want these people to get divorced? Is that really the case? It is possible. It's one option. One way to interpret the Hebrew language that was written in is to say, yeah, that could be it. They, uh, these men have either divorced their Jewish wives, and they've taken pagan wives from unbelieving nations to further establish their social standings, Or the other possibility, and I want to say this is a high possibility because of the kind of language. There are words that are used here in the original Hebrew that are not used anywhere else. Um, If they are used anywhere else, they're they're used very minimally, and and they're not used in cases of marriage and divorce. So the wording in the Hebrew language is different. It's just that our English text has rendered it as married divorce. Okay. Um, So it's highly possible, if you were to read it, Um, maybe a little bit truer to what I think the text says, Um, it might be that these men were actually never married um, and that they never actually married the women they're with. They're just simply living with these pagan women because these pagan women, their, their families would further establish these men in their social standing. Money, power, sex, like that sounds, even the desire for those things, companionship, um, especially if you take into account the fact that they have been living as a uh, subdued nation for so long. They were exiles, right? They're trying to reestablish their nation. And what do we do when we try to reestablish our power, our authority, our standing in the political square? Oftentimes we revert back to worldly ways of trying to make that happen and sometimes fall into sin. And that's, I think, what's taking place here. I actually, I think the way I take the text and read it is that they weren't married. I think that when it says separate from the strange women, I think is a better rendering of the text. Um, They're living together. They're not married. Furthermore, they're unequally yoked. One says I'm a believer. The other one says I'm not a believer. That's a clear breaking of scripture because scripture says do not be unequally yoked. I said this a few weeks ago and my kids were like, dad, no missionary dating. Right? You date for a mate, you don't date to save. <laughs> so I, I think that's how I take it, but either way, it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not a divisive issue. <clears throat> if you take that stance or if you take the stance, no, they're married and God's calling them to get divorced, here's the reality. This is an extremely sinful circumstance. It has infected the entire nation. And God wanted the nation to stay pure so that a pure Savior could come out of it. And again, I referenced last week, there are definitely um, spouses in the genealogy of Jesus throughout Israel that were not Israelites. So there's a believing spouse as part of that issue. At the end of the day, these were extremely sinful circumstances. And extremely sinful circumstances require extreme repentance. which also requires strength and resolve, right? Again, the severity of sin, bad. Pluck out the eye, cut off the hand. These are severe 
severe language. Second thing I see in the text is that repentance requires commitment and remorse. Repentance requires commitment and remorse. So the act of repentance, like the, it, it's not something that could be done half-heartedly, right? You can't do it half-heartedly. It can't be done in kind of a nonchalant attitude like, oh, okay, well, that was sin, I'm sorry, God, and then move on. There's got to be a wholehearted commitment. There's got to be an attitude of genuine remorse. There is a passage in the New Testament, and I can't place it in my mind, and nor can I get the words exactly right, but there is a difference between a worldly confession where it's like, I'm sorry I got caught. Difference between that and an authentic confession, authentic repentance of sin, where you say, I I really messed up. I sinned not just against you, but against my God who is perfect. I wrecked this. There's a difference between true godly remorse and worldly remorse. I think that's the way the passage reads. I think it's in Hebrews, maybe. Again, verses 5 and 6 kind of give us a bit of a case study of what that might look like, this commitment and remorse when it comes to repentance. Ezra responds to the challenge from Shechaniah, calls everyone around him to make a promise. So I want you to make a promise to do what I tell you to do. They all make the promise. They say, yeah, we'll take the oath. We'll do what you tell us to do. We will repent. We did wrong, right? Ezra then withdraws to a very quiet place. Um, He neither eats nor drinks, the text tells us, and eat or drink anything. Because he's weeping. Says he spends the night mourning over the sin of Israel. You ever been in that place? I asked earlier, have you ever been on your face before God because of sin? Ever been in that place where you couldn't even eat or drink because of sin? Not because something devastating happened, like somebody died or lost a job or whatever that may be. Those are devastating things for sure, but have you ever been in that place because of your sin? I can't even eat. I can't even drink. I feel so badly about my sin. This is where Ezra is because of Israel's sin. When I thought about this, I was thinking the, the, one of the other places in Scripture that comes close to this <coughs> would be Psalm 51. Be uh, David's prayer of repentance, prayer of confession, after he murders one of his inner 300. Got 300 dudes, 30 dudes, three dudes. <coughs> his mighty men killed one of his own brothers, basically, so that he could cover up the fact that he'd just slept with his wife. <sighs> right? And then loses a son because of that. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. And after a considerable time of weeping over his own sin, David does get up and refresh himself and moves on. But there's some definite commitment and some definite remorse in David, same as Ezra here. Um, Again, repentance requires commitment and remorse. Three, repentance requires community and willingness. Community and, and willingness, super important when it comes to repentance. Repentance is not something that can be done in isolation. You don't get to go sit on top of a pole like a monk and go, I repent, God. Um, There is a very private, personal thing about it, yes and amen. Repentance is meant to be done in community so that your blind spots can be seen. That's hard. Hard for me. I'm sure it's hard for you. I don't think that many of us get up in the morning and go, yippee, today I want to go ask five people. How are my blind spots? How bad do I look? What have I been doing wrong? It just makes for a tough day when you start hearing those things, right? Um, It's not something that can be done in isolation. It's not something uh, that should be done if you're unwilling. You can't walk through a process of uh, repentance begrudgingly. You know what that's like if you got kids. It's like, hey, you need to go sit in the corner out my way through this, right? That cannot be the kind of heart that we have when it comes to repentance. There has to be a willingness. I mean, the funny thing is with kids, the riot, I mean, we got seven, right? So, I mean, we just had our third grandbaby born, by the way. He's cute. His name is Mila. Boy, he's, he's a beautiful little kid. I need to stop there. Um, caused me to think. I was talking to my, my daughter, my son-in-law. I was like, you know, you got two kids now. You're going to have to learn how to divide and conquer. 
And if you have three kids, there's a possibility that you can be outnumbered. And, and when you get outnumbered, I don't know how did we say this earlier, it's, it's keeping people alive. <laughs> I'm, not here to, I'm not here to keep you happy, I'm here to keep you alive, okay? Um, so you know, we got seven kids. And you know, the funny thing is sometimes, you know, sometimes in a room where, where you've got to point out that, hey, your attitude stinks today. Yeah, but my brother, it's like, no, it's not about you, it's about you. <laughs> keep the peace. Um, Repentance cannot be done unwillingly, cannot be done begrudgingly, cannot be done when you've got your eyes all over everybody else, like your sin doesn't stink. Repentance um, includes a desire to reconcile and restore, too. Um, here is the reason why. Um, repentance w- between you and God is the act, it's your part of reconciling and restoring that relationship that's been broken by that sin. Jesus did his part at the cross. My part is to repent so that that relationship can be restored and reconciled. That vertical relationship, as I walk out repentance, then should translate into horizontal relationships, right? Now here's the ugly truth, is that we are not in heaven yet. Therefore, on the face of this planet, we will not always experience that same kind of reconciliation and restoration in horizontal relationships. But here's what we can look forward to. My vertical relationship with my God is good because of what Jesus did on the cross and because my response has been repentance. Therefore, I can look forward to a heaven where all things will be made new again, including any of those relationships that are not completely put back together here. Right? So, repentance has a part to play in that reconciliation restoration in our case study here in Ezra you can see that repentance is a community project you can see that it has to be done willingly Ezra puts out a proclamation in verses 7 through 12 of what needs to happen for Israel to repent of their sin what does Israel need to do (coughs) they need to gather within three days he says otherwise there's going to be some consequences and they will be severe I mean Ezra has no problems laying out severe consequences for going back on the oath that they took. Um, The beauty of the story, I think, in the midst of this, and I think sometimes we miss this in Scripture because we take, churches or believers take a really heavy-handed view in this whole sin thing. Like, you ever talk to somebody, it's like they can't ever get out of the sin bucket? Like, that's all they can talk about? You know, like, there's never a shining, glimmering moment because there's almost like a fear that if we ever say, hey, yo, Patrick, you did a good job in that or whatever, that it's like somehow we might create some pride or something. I don't know. I just, I say all that to say, in the text, there is a shining moment for Israel. Yes, they are in some deep, egregious sin. And we should debate that someday, too, what's egregious and what's not. Anyways, they're definitely in some deep sin. And yet... Uh, they do respond. They do respond well. They respond to Ezra's call to repent. And I think that needs to be highlighted that God was at work in them. Uh, and they were willing to respond. Um, so I think that's good. They do gather. And here's what they gather for. How about that? I don't know if any of us in this room would ever want to gather for, for, for this, but I'll ask the question sometimes. I've done this in youth ministry a lot and done it here too. Right now, in your own mind, maybe on your piece of paper where your spouse can't see it <laughs> or your friend sitting next to you, if you would please write down the three sins that come to your mind that you committed this week. Ready, set, go. Top three. Top three. The ones you think are the worst. Now what I would like you to do is around your tables, I would like you to share number one with everybody else around the table. Yeah, see how horrified you feel? <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to put us through that. It's just an exercise in helping us understand what is taking place here in the text. Again, something that I don't think the church does. We make generalized confessions of sin because that's easier for us to stomach. But in the Bible, that's not what happened. They didn't generalize sin. I think sometimes we do this out of a good motivation. Well, I want to protect somebody else and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I understand some of that. I think sometimes it's very self-protective, though. 
Um, what do they gather for? Here's what they gather for. They gather for a public recounting of their sin. Ezra stands up and publicly recounts everything they had done wrong in this scenario. And they trembled, it says. Text tells us they trembled. Why? Because of the severity of the matter. And why else? Because of the rain. (laughs) I don't know if Ezra just tossed that in there because he's being a little bit of a comedian trying to lighten the moment. But he tosses that in there. Apparently it was part of the issue. It was the rainy season. It rained a lot. Um, But he says they were trembling because of the severity of this matter and because of the heavy rain as he read a public proclamation of their sin. As he's looking into their eyes and saying, you sinned this way, you sinned this way, you sinned this way, you sinned this way. It's nuts. I don't think you plant churches that way. Do you? As they trembled, what did Ezra do? He called them as a community to separate themselves from the sin that was going to kill them. And they responded willingly. So again, repentance requires community and willingness. Fourth thing I see in the text is that repentance requires patience and an action plan. Repentance requires patience and an action plan. So this is not something that you can do with some kind of a reckless impatience, right? I mean, we do need to be quick to jump into wanting to repent and saying, I'm willing, definitely want to repent. Need to be quick to engage the process. Should not be hiding from that or running from that. At the same time, it needs to be accompanied by tangible actions. And you see that in the text, verses 13 through 17, the nation of Israel As a community, they're more than willing to repent. They've confessed that their sin was very bad. They also recognize that repentance cannot be done quickly. Part of it's because of the rain. Part of it's probably because of the size of the nation, too. But part of it, and they say it uh, pretty well, if I can find it, verses 13 through 17, when they ask for extra time, there is a phrase, yes, at the end of verse 13, nor is this task for one day or for two. Why? Why can't we do this in a day or two? Somebody would ask. Come on, Ezra. Let's get this over with so we can move on to brighter days and sunshine, right? Rainbows and unicorns and baby shark. I don't know. Pancakes, bacon, steak, smoke. Anyways. Why can't we do this in one or two days? He says, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Point being, my sin is great. Therefore, the plan of repentance, the action plan, should be great. That's their response. So they put together a plan of repentance that spanned across a three-month period of time. It's going to take three months from beginning to end. And they employed the help of their leaders from the community to guide the process along. Again, community being a big part of that. Leadership being led through that is a big part of it too. I think the high point of this whole thing, when you just step back from the text, you think about the high point. The high point of the whole thing is that Israel actually follows through. They actually follow through on this one. Uh, They they do it patiently and they, they execute the action plan that they put into place. And they actually engaged the process with tangible patience, right? And in this instance, Israel really did put their money where their mouths were. They backed up their words with visible action. That's really what we see taking place. And by God's grace. I think you go back to some of the places where Ezra says God's hand was on us. It doesn't say that here, but I think there's an, there's an inference of that at least. So that's the text. And those are... Those are some things about repentance and sin and how serious it is and what it looks like to walk this out. I do want to leave us um, in conclusion with a quick note that I think is really important. Many of you heard me say this. um, And I just came up with another one in my head that I just remembered too. Um, Repentance is not a destination. If you think you arrived there, there's a problem. Typically that's called pride at least a root 
If you think you arrived, you got something beat. Oh, my friend, that's a dangerous place to be. It's not a destination. Um, It's a process. It's a discipline. It's a daily discipline. It's not going to be complete until you walk into heaven. That's the reality about repentance. And too too often, it's part of our human wiring. We want goals. We want tangible goals, right? Good tangible plan, great. Um, Repentance for Israel was not over three months later. After three months was over, they woke up the next morning, and if they got the picture, should have woke up confessing sin, confessing faith, and continuing to move forward in slow growth. The other thing I would say, um, and I think it was actually in my mind, it's Andrea that reminded me of this a few years back. It was a phrase from a a study that uh, many in our church were doing together. And I think the phrase goes something along these lines. When we step into repentance, uh, we want to treat it like we are jackalopes, right? Like we just run really fast, I think is the right term. Um, but, but the reality is we need to see ourselves more like turtles. Really. Inch by inch by inch by inch by inch. Instead of mile after mile after mile after mile. Because we're human and we're complex and we're broken. And uh, I think that's the way we want to look at Repentance. It's much slower than we want it to be. We need to quit looking at ourselves thinking, I should be faster at this. That, I, I think that's a demonic pressure anyways. That just creates shame and guilt. Oh, you're not good enough. Who does that sound like? Oh, you're not getting after this fast enough. Who does that sound like? Sound like does that sound like God? No. What sounds like God is the tattoo I have in my hand from Romans 8.1 that says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And moving forward, there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything else in all of creation, including myself. When you live in that kind of assurance, this kind of repentance, inch by inch by bloody freaking inch, is possible. I do think this, uh, this discipline of repentance should be a part of every believer's lifestyle, right? I mean, if, if there is no sin, then there is no need to repent. And if you claim to have no sin, then the scriptures are very clear. You do not have a savior. You don't know a savior. You have one, you just don't know him. That's 1 John 1, 6 through 10. Sin and repentance are very serious. Sin is what nailed Jesus to the cross, the cross that belonged to us. It was my cross that he crawled upon, willingly. Repentance, turning from sin to Jesus in faith, uh, that's what the Christian life is all about, I think. You want to ask what the essence of the Christian faith is about? Repentance and faith. Repent from sin and turn in faith. Requires strength, requires resolve, requires commitment, requires remorse, requires community, willingness, patience, and action. It's a lot. You could study those words out for a long time in the scriptures. And the reality is, all these things that I've talked about today, all these things that we've kind of noticed in the text, they go against the very grain of who we are, don't they? I mean, deep down inside, as a complex, sinful human being, goes against the grain. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. That essence is to pick up a cross. It's to pick up a cross daily and to die to myself, is the way Jesus said it. And to put that sin to death. And you do that by practicing repentance along some of these principles that we've talked about today. And I, again, as John Owen said, you best be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And your choice is, you're going to drink the glass of cyanide or you're going to drink the glass of fresh water that Jesus offers a woman at the well. I mean, I know where I want to head to. The problem is, is I have a tendency in my life to toggle back and forth. A little tiny bit of cyanide. 
and a bunch of water at the well. That's the process of sanctification. So over the course of time, God continues to perfect you, continues to grow you. You're an active player in that, and repentance is the key. The only place you can do this is what I always say. You've got to get to the foot of that bloody cross. You've got to sit in the doorway of that empty tomb and receive that victory and receive that power. You've got to clean tight to the hope of heaven where you know this earth ain't your home. And in heaven, it'll all be made perfect. And at that point, when you and I walk into heaven, that's when God's going to look at you and I and say, well done, my good and faithful son, my good and faithful daughter. Because of Christ, your journey of repentance is now over. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the now part of that passage in heaven, I can't wait. Let's pray. Father, as we close, I pray that you would come by the power of your spirit and do a work among us as we turn our hearts in worship to you through song, as we receive again the elements of communion. Pray, God, that you would continue a work of conviction and a work of strengthening work of purifying our hearts Lord I don't know where every person in this room is in at today but the great thing is I don't have to because you do but I pray that you would come by your spirit and meet each person in this room right where they're at and take them the next inch Trust that you will do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.